0: Welcome to the Envision Forum podcast. I'm FERC Chairman Neil Chatterjee. Joining me today is John Moore, who is Director of the Sustainable FERC Project at the Natural Resources Defense Council. At NRDC, he focuses on developing a modern, flexible, and efficient high-powered electrical grid that will help accelerate the use of renewable and clean energy. John. Thank you for taking the time to talk on the Envision Forum podcast.
1: Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. I'm delighted to be here and appreciate the invitation.
0: Well, uh, John, our listeners are, of course, familiar with NRDC and the work it does. But can you just tell us a little bit about what you do there? Certainly. I direct the
1: Sustainable FERC project, as you mentioned, Uh, and the FERC project is housed within NRDC, but it's uh, really a partnership of similarly minded environmental and other public interest organizations that are really focused on using FERC uh, and the FERC statutory authorities to help decarbonize the power sector. Uh, I'm happy to say we're now 25 years young. Uh, we started in the mid 1990s, you know, and that was really just about the same time that FERC was starting to open up the power grid in different ways. So, I, I, one more thing I'll say is that, and this could be part of our additional discussion, is that our one of our core, you know, assumptions and beliefs is that FERC's just and reasonable rate standard—that's uh, a foundation of FERC wonkiness, I think. Uh, in electric markets, and the public interest—the uh, public interest standard for gas infrastructure planning—can be used to help uh, bolster clean energy progress. So that's the high-level overview of what we do, and we are again a partnership with other organizations.
0: So coming up on 25 years, uh, obviously a lot has changed uh, in the energy, electricity, and market landscape in that time. Can you talk a little bit about um, the evolution of these markets and what you've seen over uh, the past couple decades?
1: Sure, a, a lot has happened, I- and I think At a high level, the grid and our electricity system has gotten larger. Uh, It needs to get larger, and it's also gotten smaller. It needs to get even smaller, and that's uh, not—it's not—it shouldn't be a zero-sum game. Uh, We know that the rise of distributed energy resources only is going to continue to occur. Uh, Sort of the first wave of renewable energy development was in the large-scale utility sector uh, level of power development, and now through, obviously, uh, rooftop solar and the coming growth of electric vehicles, large and small trucks down to cars, uh, building electrification, and all sorts of other high-tech driven uh, um, resources the grid is also gonna be getting smaller. Uh, So I think those are two of the changes. They've been driven by economics, Uh, You know, renewable energy is a lot more affordable now. It's competitive with other resources. It's been driven by environmental standards, uh, federal and state, the drive for decarbonization generally and the growing, uh, I think, you know, almost universal awareness of the need to fight climate change and the power sector is a major part of that especially if you think about the role of the power sector in enabling economic growth, uh, uh, generally speaking, and also through uh, potentially just directly uh, fueling, so to speak, the transportation and building sectors. So I think overall, you think about where FERC in the electricity space has gone in the last 20 years it has been both larger and smaller. And I think the growth of RTOs, regional electricity markets, uh, open transparent markets has obviously been a, a big piece of that.
0: I don't want to get ahead of my colleagues too much, but um, I've been vocal that we at the commission uh, have been working uh, to towards finalizing a rulemaking to remove some of the barriers to entry for aggregated uh, distributed energy resources at a very high level. And again, knowing that it's a rulemaking, so we can talk about it, but I don't want to get too far ahead on it. Um, what would What would... What would you like to see, potentially, out of a a rulemaking from the commission um, uh, in terms of breaking down some of the barriers to entry for these resources?
1: Sure. Uh, Thanks for asking that question. The distributed energy resource aggregation rule certainly is always on our radar, and we're eager for the commission to take final action on it. We certainly would like it to be a a forward-thinking rule. Uh, focused on markets, uh, the integration of markets, uh, of uh, uh, allowing DERs to access markets. Aggregation of those resources is obviously an important way to do that. And the uh, FERC's Order 841 energy storage rule uh, that you finalized was really an important foundational step towards that aggregation of distributed energy resources. And I know this is an issue that creates some tension with states, but we think it's vitally important that customers on behind the meter, behind the retail meter, are, uh, in the right circumstances, allowed to access wholesale markets, uh, or the states have to provide something equivalent to that, that Helps get more energy in the system. it allows energy to be uh, consumed as well and if we think of tens of millions of uh, vehicles on the on the grid and also all the rooftop solar that kind of a forward thinking rule that allows aggregation you know across different areas uh, and that limits the ability of states to prevent that kind of aggregation. Uh, both important, uh, we, you know we can maybe talk a little bit about the California uh, situation a little bit later in the podcast, but I think having more of uh, customer and direct access to wholesale markets might have helped to mitigate some of those uh, problems with the blackout so forward focused uh, recognize absolutely the challenges of integrating distribu- distributed side resources into the transmission grid. We think it's very possible. And that uh, it's going to really require utilities who – it will really require a breakdown, a little bit of the siloing between a utility's distribution and transmission system uh, offices and infrastructure. That's a a good thing, I think, because that's part of where we need to go as a country, breaking down those literally uh, engineering sort of barriers between the distribution and transmission systems.
0: Now you touched on something really interesting uh, for some of our listeners who may not uh, be experts uh, on the complexities uh, of uh, markets and 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 weaving in these technologies, uh, can you talk a little bit about the nexus that you see um, in between a rulemaking such as this and uh, potentially uh, increasing the deployment of eVs? Sure. Uh, Electric – of course,
1: uh, in the minds of a lot of us, electric vehicles are just rolling batteries or batteries on wheels, and early studies have shown that electric vehicles can – significantly reduce peak uh, peak demand uh, and not just shift it, uh, but reduce it. Uh, and storage is obviously a way to do that. And early studies out of MISO have shown this. Uh, NREL, other places have shown it. So allowing aggregation of electric vehicles uh, and even potentially thinking about new market designs to help facilitate that integration into the markets would be something probably we'll be talking about very soon. Right now, we've got a day ahead market and a real-time market. The day ahead market is exactly that. Uh, Something we've been looking at is whether or not we should start thinking about an intraday financially binding market, Uh, you know, hour or hours ahead of time that would help Uh, both EV owners, aggregators of EV owners, and also solar storage resources have a better idea of what weather conditions and just simple driving conditions will be. Uh, Well, they will know they will have a better idea of weather and driving conditions just a couple of hours ahead uh, rather than a day ahead. So maybe an intraday market would be something that the commission should be looking at at some point. So stay tuned for more from us on that particular point.
0: Fascinating. Um, one other thing that you touched on uh in your earlier response in talking about eight forty one, uh, that you thought it was necessary, but it did create um, some tensions with the states. Uh there's really a lot of complex uh legal and jurisdictional questions that are arising with this evolution in technology. Um we had a petition that was recently filed at the commission uh, in regards to jurisdiction over net metering and the commission uh, unanimously dismissed that petition and uh rehearing was not sought so we can talk about it or you can talk about it and uh, i can listen to it without having to file an ex parte memo i'm just curious uh uh as to how you viewed that petition and um what the implications would have been uh had the commission accepted
1: yeah i think it it was in our view jurisdictional overreach uh i think it would have been uh Uh, encroachment into state jurisdiction over some of the avoided cost issues, and would have, you know, limited uh, the ability of some of the uh, PERPA facilities to you know, expand under state law. Uh, obviously, you saw an intense arousal of opposition from state commissioners, uh, states, uh, NARUC and others about it. So I think that kind of expressed how close it was getting to the state control over resource adequacy flame, so to speak. So I don't think that was uh, too surprising from our perspective. I think. It's you know it's a question we, we the, the broader question is well where is that jurisdictional line and we uh, maybe it's because I'm a lawyer I tend to go first back to the Federal Power Act and the scope of FERC's jurisdiction over wholesale rates and practices affecting rates and that's why I think we can simultaneously say that FERC has jurisdiction over resources wherever they are on the system. Offering bids into wholesale markets, whereas they might not have jurisdiction over some of their state resource adequacy choices themselves and how they do that and you know perPA' is a tricky statute uh I don't know anyone who's completely mastered all of the ins and outs of of perPA
0: um, well, thank you for that uh, that response. Uh, I want to pivot a little bit um, you know uh we we cannot have a conversation uh, about energy policy or life, frankly, today without talking about the implications of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about how the pandemic has affected the sustainable projects work? Sure.
1: Uh, I think it's underlined or underscored for us what's happening as a result of the pandemic underscores for us that uh, renew, uh, renewable energy is still going very strong. Uh, I think on the customer side, and we're not directly uh, working with this so much, but on the customer side, there's still a lot of need for customer protections at the retail utility level, uh, debt relief, you know, and understanding that there are some cost recovery issues to get to. I mean, I will say that I thought that the uh, COVID-19 technical conference you called, really highlighted the ability uh, and the fact that the utilities are mostly on top of this and have and and I I think one of the important points is that a lot of those utilities started planning for a pandemic like this a decade ago so thankfully there was some good planning in place already in that case some people are learning and planning ahead to avoid a full-blown crisis so I think that all was uh, really useful to know and also useful to remember for the future right for the next cyber attack uh, that happens that's really debilitating and i know work is going on with that too so that's another angle to that and i think that you know just looking at the miso queue i was just thinking about this uh, earlier this week the miso queue now has over 100 gigawatts of new projects in the in the queue including almost 70 gigawatts of solar that's just in the last few months. So, yes, the the pandemic I think is you know impacting the supply chain uh, and creating some short term problems, but it's definitely not impacting, and in fact, to some extent, I could argue it's accelerating some of the interest in clean energy development for different reasons.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask you that question. If you thought the effect of the pandemic, you know, prior to the pandemic, uh, we were clearly in the midst uh, uh, of a significant energy transition that was providing a lot of benefits to consumers, to the economy, to the environment. Um, And I was going to ask you that. Do you think the pandemic has some of that progress, has accelerated it. Um, uh, w- what are some of the implications that you're seeing for the energy transition uh, as we go through the pandemic and prepare, hopefully sooner rather than later, to, to come out of it and, and, and resume uh, uh, life post-pandemic?
1: Sure. Well, I think maybe some of it's on the budget side, especially for states and the federal government, thinking about new investments in any kind of energy infrastructure, new clean energy, for example, programs and the like. So I think there's going to be a little bit of a blip for those direct types of investments, uh, state subsidized investments in particular. But on the other hand, I think the declining price, price, the fact that Renewable energy is now price equivalent to other fossil and thermal energy resources says that it's no longer a kind of nice to have, but not critical to have solution tool in the toolbox, so to speak. So I think the longer term effects actually might once we get through this next period uh, and we get the vaccine and people's budgets and life starts returning a little bit to normal, because I, I think it mostly will maybe some of us won't be traveling so much, but uh, I think that you'll we'll see a pretty strong uptick by next year in it.
0: So stepping back from the pandemic a bit and focusing more on the continuing transition of the electricity sector, um, just curious to get your take on what we've learned so far and what lessons we still need to learn you referenced California earlier. Uh, maybe now is the time to, uh, to just get your perspective on it. My former colleague, uh, uh, Commissioner LaFleur, uh, I thought quite accurately described the situation in California as a Rorschach test, to where people see in it what they want to see, uh, and they can find examples uh, to make an argument. Uh, that they were already planning to make. And uh, as we at the commission are just focused on getting the facts and finding out exactly what happened and what the underlying causes were and uh, and, and, and how to evaluate going forward. Curious to get your perspective on uh, both what's going on in California today, but um, lessons learned from the broader transition in the electricity space.
1: Sure. That really is a uh topic of the day, isn't it? Uh California between uh the weather, the fires, and then the uh controlled blackouts. Been a very busy month or two out there. I, I think i think the California blackouts raise a couple of questions, at least a few questions in my mind. And I think these are questions that the California grid operator, CAISO, uh and definitely the state uh and FERC will be looking at over the next few months, and, and the first question is, you know, how well is the fragmented electricity uh, procurement system serving California right now? As we know, we've got a lot of community choice aggregators, uh, many of whom are underinvested in long-term energy supply. Uh, so, and I think that we've been aware of for a long time, or at least for a couple of years. So maybe we need more coordinated procurement, uh, better alignment uh, between and among those CCAs and the utilities, uh, joint contracting for longer term reserves, uh, et cetera, et cetera. I think another big issue is how is the how is the market pricing scarcity? Is it really doing a good job with that? Is it pricing scarcity in alignment with what customers uh, want to pay for avoiding load curtailment? I don't think there's a lot happening there on that, and this doesn't mean that California has to go over to a Texas or ERCOT-style uh, energy-only market model with scarcity pricing. Uh, MISO is, you know, MISO, which is uh, mostly vertically integrated states, is looking at scarcity pricing on the reserve side, uh, so that's also, I think, a possibility. I, it would i would be negligent if i didn't mention the need to integrate uh, more demand response into the market through price signals i think demand redu- voluntary demand reduction appeals voluntary other voluntary measures are all well and good uh, but mostly they're not being that their their willingness to pay is not being priced in the markets and i think people would pay to reduce power consumption if they were able to do so under you know FERC order 745 uh, on demand response so that's a critical point about it i think two other two other comments one uh, energy efficiency you know still the low-hanging fruit the gift that gives keeps on giving i think the state uh, and the federal government could be both doing a lot more to help use EE to reduce peak demand, especially in the summer months, uh, with air conditioning standards and the like. I know that's not all within FERC's purview, uh, but I I think there's a lot that could be done there. I think that uh, the integrated grid we talk about, that also would help a little bit. I know that demand was high throughout the region. I mean, we were really talking about plus 100 degree days uh, for many hours on end, but being able to consolidate those 38 different utility balancing areas into a single into a single regional organization, or at least a single market, would probably have helped uh, to move more of the power around. And then I know there's a there's an issue around gas supply, and I actually think the question is, you know, is the gas supply market just too rigidly designed right now? Uh, how much intraday pricing is there in the market? Is the supply and scheduling really lined up? Correctly, uh, you know. So there's probably some dependencies there. Heck, I mean, I've read commentary by pretty well-respected people that we need more solar on the system to help charge the batteries. So all of it is to say it's complicated, uh, and you know, to some extent, it does harken back to what resource adequacy really means and what's the role of the states. What's the role of FERC in ensuring a reliable and affordable electric supply?
0: Well, uh thank you to build on that uh very uh, thorough uh, answer, looking into your crystal ball because everything you've just laid out brings up a ton of policy questions what What do you think will be among the most important issues for policymakers? Uh, in the next decade and beyond, what what are the types of uh, policy changes and uh, innovations that we need to be looking into uh, over the next decade?
1: Well, uh, that's really a nice uh, segue into what are the FERC project's primary policies uh, policy goals. And you know we basically have four reform wholesale markets to keep up with the pace of change. Uh, spur meaningful transmission development, you know, open those more, more open more markets to small resources, and also uh, restructure how FERC does its regulation of gas uh, infrastructure. I think I've already talked a little bit about market design, uh, and on the D, on the distributed energy resource side, obviously we're facing continuing tensions in the east with eastern capacity markets, and I think we've now got. Three legal challenges, four legal challenges underway, uh, but you know litigation really isn't in our mind the the ideal solution in here. And I'm really heartened to see uh, uh, folks like uh, the PJM PJM uh, CEO Manu Asana making commitments to look at how PJM redesigns its capacity market for the future. Transmission development. I don't know. You've probably spoken more about transmission development than uh, most of us in the next in the last couple of years. It's a it's a big one. Uh, don't I think you'd agree with that? Uh, what can FERC do there? I'm I'm curious to hear what you'd have to say about it. Uh, that hasn't already been said. And and yeah, that I think that plus the the gas approval process. You, Probably know our position around that and the need, especially the need to update the 1999 gas policy uh, certification statement that uh, is open. It's an open docket now. Former uh, Chair McIntyre opened that up. We, Our position is pretty clear through the submissions we made around looking at regional need and carbon impacts and the like. And so that's a priority for us. And then I think. Just more just more generally, there's an increasing awareness of the need to account for equity uh, in in planning and in markets, and that's both states and FERC, right? I mean, this term frontline communities exist everywhere. It, whether or not they're in Appalachia, next to a coal plant, uh, near a transmission line, or a wind farm, or in New York City next to a peaker plant, and so if we're talking about carbon markets or any market design, for example, uh, would there those communities need to be brought into the into the conversation as well? So those uh, are the speaking those about, are the oh,
0: oh, yeah. Sorry. So yeah. just to build on that, speaking a little bit about. Um, Uh, you know, carbon and carbon mitigation and markets. Um, uh, Obviously, we can uh, uh, agree to disagree uh, on uh, the MOPER and its implications, but the commission is uh, convening a technical conference at the end of September to look at uh, and explore issues around a carbon price in FERC jurisdictional markets. Uh, We've uh, issued our notice. Um, It can still be updated, but we've got a a pretty robust list of panelists. Uh, What are you hoping to see come out of this process uh, and and this discussion? I, I think
1: at least two or three different points. First, that there is general agreement that states should be in the driver's seat on carbon pricing, absent a federal overarching carbon policy, of course, and that FERC can facilitate uh, carbon imple- carbon price implementation. I mean, it's already happening in California and in Reggie, the Regional Green- Greenhouse Gas Initiative, where the carbon prices are being incorporated into offers. It's obviously happening with Clean Air Act compliance requirements. So FERC's already doing it. To some extent, and I think making clear that FERC's role is a facilitator and and an enabler, and not in the driver's seat, and that the states are probably would uh, I know uh, it would would give states much more confidence in being able to move forward in that. And so I hope I hope the record you know comes out pretty clearly on that side. And th- I think that's the primary primary goal i've got for the conference, you know maybe it 's like do no harm again, going back to the states uh, being in the driver's seat, making sure that uh, nothing is said that implicate implies that FERC can preempt state policy, and then another important point is that the any carbon price policy doesn't need needs to be part of a well-designed market system it should not build upon bad market design so yes we can agree to disagree about the moper we'd be concerned about piling on a carbon price on top of the moper and maybe even more important some of the other attributes of the capacity markets we are concerned with uh, without you know simultaneously addressing those market problems, again, as we see them. So that's why I think you've uh, seen the reticence of some environmental and customer or consumer groups and others uh, to avoid a full-throated endorsement of like carbon pricing at this time. I think we need some assurances and more exploration of those kinds of topics.
0: So uh building on that a little bit uh and I don't want to put uh words in his mouth but the the governor of Illinois recently uh spoke out about this you know there had been some uh uh, uh opposition to the MOPR mm-hmm. within mm-hmm. Illinois and uh, a desire to potentially explore uh the FRR and uh exiting the capacity markets and I think the the governor again not putting words in his mouth essentially said that there'd be too much harm to consumers and uh uh is is advocating to push away from that and to stay uh, within uh, PJM capacity market, but the governor seemed to indicate that he thought that if the state were to move on a price on carbon, that that could dovetail with the MOPER. Again, not being very careful to say uh, I'm uh, uh, not putting words in his mouth. That was my interpretation of his comments. Do you think there could be a way that those two policies could actually dovetail and work together?
1: I think it would be, again, I think I look at the total consumer cost, total customer cost, and what it does for renewable energy resources on the system. So if you can, you know, avoid the overcapacity, the over procurement, uh, other challenges, then yeah, maybe they can work together. I think you could also design a An FRR that is customer friendly, uh, that avoids market power issues, and is certainly no worse than the current capacity market system PJM has now. I also completely understand the unique, somewhat unique Illinois dynamics right now, as you as you know, uh, that uh, pushing the governor towards looking at something like carbon pricing. So we're completely supportive of talking about how that could be done, and. I certainly, while I'm not speaking for everyone in the Sustainable Fork Project Coalition, I I think that more concrete plans from more states can only help advance the conversation uh, and more conversations like this get us to a cleaner energy future. So we'll see. It's obviously a very dynamic process in Illinois right now, and uh, we are only in the middle of uh, the book, (laughs) so to speak.
0: Uh, Well, speaking of that book, um, it's no secret that FERC has faced some opposition from the environmental movement in recent years. Um, But I think examples like what we've discussed today on storage and DERs and net metering and uh, exploring a price on carbon. I want to turn the table a little little bit. What have we done right in your view?
1: Sure. Uh, well, I, I think there's a there's a good list in front of us. Uh, number one, early on, uh, not surprising for me to say this, but uh, FERC stood strong against the coal bailouts. Uh, I think this was something that uh, didn't make a lot of sense, didn't make any sense, and it allowed the markets to function, uh, which we think is critical for clean energy. You also, as I've already mentioned, uh, pushed uh, past uh, approved the storage rule, um, Order 841. I think that's a big step and a great precedent. You've done a much better job of reaching out to landowners on the gas side and uh, being more transparent. Uh, And of course, you know, we we see more progress there to be had, but I think that's been really good. And I I mean, just your comments, uh, I guess, you know, they're they're the comments of the chair yourself and not the full commission, but I think you've been saying some uh, good things about the need to turn to transmission next uh, as being really important. So that's, while not a rule per se, is also, I think, very important. Plus the other technical conferences like COVID and uh, carbon pricing, all very worthwhile.
0: Well, thank you for that. Um, I want to close uh, on a little bit uh, of a crossover, personal and professional note. Um, uh, We at the commission uh, uh, are uh, down to three members, but we've got a couple of folks that have been nominated and uh, uh are waiting their Senate uh confirmation hearing. Uh one of them uh is a former colleague of yours. Uh again, I know you don't want to uh, uh say too much uh, ahead of her confirmation process, but uh uh should she make it through the Senate process, she would become a colleague of mine. Uh what do I have to look forward to?
1: Well, uh I would just say that and Allison is a person of the highest integrity, extremely smart and intelligent. She understands the energy space very well. Uh, she has broad experience in it and also deep experience uh, working uh, across and with folks. Uh, uh, just in a very nonpartisan manner. So I think she comes into the she would come into the position, uh, fully capable of doing the job and of the, of the, of a FERC commissioner, uh, from day one. So I think she'd be a delight to work with. And for that matter, uh, from what I know about, uh, Commissioner Mark Christie in Virginia, I think the same probably could be said for him too. So I think, uh, both would be uh, you know wonderful additions to the commission and also get it back up to full
0: strength in regards to Allison something very important to me uh does she like sports
1: uh, she does uh and uh, as a, a proud michigan grad i'm sure there would be uh, plenty of uh, topics to disagree on around sports but uh she definitely does <laughs>
0: Well, to close, you and I have bonded over sports in the past, and uh, I'm dying. I, I haven't really <laughs> uh, been keeping up with baseball because uh, the defending World Series champion nationals uh, have struggled, and with no fans and the truncated season, it's been tough. I haven't really kept up with hockey or basketball because it just seems odd to be in the NHL playoffs or the NBA playoffs uh, in August. I'm really, really looking forward to the nfl and i'm optimistic that we have an nfl season uh you and i have talked about our, our shared love for uh, for professional football should the nfl season kick off as it's supposed to on september 10th uh how's your team looking this fall
1: Well, I've got really one major team, which is the Steelers, and uh, I'm very concerned and interested in how quarterback Ben Roethlisberger performs. He uh, he had serious arm surgery last year and and problems there, and there's not a lot of backup on the Pittsburgh team uh, in case he goes down again. I think he's 38 years old, and as Ben goes, so goes the Steelers this year. So I think a lot of people are, are focused on that. And having moved to Chicago, I naturally pay attention to the Bears. And there has been so much ink written uh, and blood spilled uh, metaphorically by Chicago Bears fans over the last three years with uh, Mitch Trubisky's travails and troubles. Uh, now we've got a real quarterback competition uh, with the Bears. So everyone's to say that people are eager to see how Trubisky does this year is uh, is a gross understatement. And uh, time will only tell, and I guarantee you that the opinions have already formed and we'll have a lot of new opinions in the next couple of weeks. (laughs) And it's true whether or not the season starts as scheduled or not.
0: Well, I hope we have the opportunity to see how it shakes out. Uh, Final question. Uh, I have uh, told many people that I think uh, Chicago is the greatest city uh, in America. Four months a year. Uh, it is 91 degrees and humid and sticky, and uh, and and we've got rain in the forecast this afternoon here in the greater Washington D.C. area. Just so our listeners uh, can uh, can live vicariously through you. Uh, w- what are the conditions on the ground in in Chicago today? <laughs> Well, I think we've got a
1: nice high-pressure system moving into the area. It's maybe 82 degrees, and the weekend looks sunny and in the high 70s. So
0: oh, God, I think good. we've got a good I, one ahead right of us. <laughs> there is nothing, uh, some of the most enjoyable experiences of my life been uh, uh, at Wrigley Field uh, in, in the summer and, and early fall. Uh, it, nothing gets better. John, uh, thank you again uh, for your time and for uh, sharing your insights with us today on the Envision Forum podcast. Uh, I really enjoyed the discussion and uh, hopefully uh, sooner rather than later, uh, you'll be able to make your way from Chicago to Washington. And And uh, we can actually meet in person and not uh, virtually.
1: Amen to that. Thank you very much for having me.
0: Really enjoyed it. I appreciate it. Thank you. The Envision podcast is sponsored by the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission and its chairman, Neil Chatterjee. Views expressed in this podcast do not represent the views of FERC or any individual FERC commissioner.